Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 5-1 Volleyball Podcast, the best way to follow pro volleyball in audio form. Today, I'm going to do a mailbag episode, which means I'm going to answer questions that people asked on my Instagram account, at 5-1-VB. So if you don't already follow me there, and you want to ask a question for next mailbag, go follow me at 5-1-VB on Instagram, and you can ask a question, and I'll answer it on this podcast on mailbag number seven. But first, mailbag number six, lots of great questions, once again, from you guys. Thanks for asking those. Gives me a lot of good topics to discuss. There have also been so many transfers over the last few days, so either Friday or Saturday, I'm going to try and do a big podcast just covering all those transfers, a lot of players finding their new teams. Now that all the dust is settled, all the playoffs are done, people are going home, and all the clubs are preparing for the next year. So look forward to a podcast covering all those transfers. Don't worry, I haven't forgot about them. So let's get to these questions. And probably the most popular one was asking about Cubs-ass Kemerovo. And if you didn't know, they upset Zenit Kazan the first time in five years that Zenit Kazan has lost. And Kuzbas Kemerovo has won the Russian Super League in four games, winning three to one. So, of course, the most common question asked is, how the heck did Kuzbas Kemerovo, a good team, play second in the regular season? But Zenit Kazan was by far the best team in the regular season in the Russian Super League. With 25 wins and only one loss the entire season. Absolutely crazy. So Nick.bch, Nostal, Jesus, and Erdepix basically all had the similar question, which is, can you explain how Kuzbas Kemerovo beat Zenik Zan? And even watching the games, I don't know if I can fully wrap my head around Zenik Zan losing to a team, again, Gonna say this a lot. Kemerovo, a very good team, but obviously not at the talent level of Zenikazan. But there were definitely a few factors that contributed to their victory. Gonna say the biggest one was the absolutely incredible play of Viktor Politev. He was definitely the star of the show for Kuzbas Kemerovo, scoring 19, 23, 14, and 28 points in the four games that Kemerovo played. The leading scorer in each of those games for Kemerovo did so on really good attacking efficiency, well over 50% against a very tough blocking team in Zenikazan, was getting a lot of out-of-system balls. And I think that's one of the main reasons why Kemerovo was able to do so well, is that even if Zenikazan was putting in a lot of tough service pressure, which they did, then they could just give the ball to Politev, and he would more likely than not score the ball. And you also have to give credit to Russian setter Igor Kobzar, who did a really good job of finding Politev, even on those subpar passes. You could tell the two years that Kobzar and Politev have spent together have contributed a lot to some very good chemistry between the two. Also, both of them former Zenit Kazan players, so... Maybe they knew a thing or two about the blocking systems that Kazan was using against them. Politev, though, I think what he's doing is incredibly impressive. I think at this point, I would say he's got to be a top 10 opposite in the world. Still quite a young guy, too, at only 23 years old. So he has a lot of years to mature and grow as a player. 
I think he's going to be giving Maxi Mikhailov some stiff competition for the national team starting spot sooner than people realize. Another big factor in Kamarova's victory has got to be that their middles were able to pretty much neutralize Artem Volvich and to a lesser extent Lekoshestov. Volvich with only three, three and five points in the three games that Kamarova won, especially in that last game where Volvich only hit five for 17, which is absolutely atrocious for a metal attacker. Dmitry Pashitsky and Ivel Tavasiev did a really good job of being able to commit to the middle, but at least still getting some sort of block up on the wing hitters. We know Zenik is on, maybe not as fast tempo as some of the other high-level teams like Perugia and Lube Civitanova and Trentino. So taller blockers like Pashitsky are able to at least get some hands up, get some block touches, even if the block isn't fully set. And I think that slowed down the attack of Zenikazan just enough for the backline guys like Laurie Kermanen and Paul Deschneck to get some hands on the ball. I think that kind of leads into the third reason why Kemarova was able to beat Kazan, and that's because they were just incredibly scrappy, getting their hands on so many balls. I think Laurie Kerminen is one of the best liberos at being able to do this. The amount of rallies he saved was absolutely spectacular for Kemarovo. But also you have to give credit to the rest of their team. Kobzar did a great job in the back row defense. Also, Paul Deschneck, as I mentioned earlier, did a really good job. And Anton Karpukov also did a really good job in the back row. So even if the middles weren't setting up the best blocks, they took up just enough court that the back row guys were able to get something up. And like I mentioned earlier, they had a really good out-of-system offense going because they would just throw the ball to Viktor Politev, and he would, most of the time, do a pretty good job at scoring it. Also, I don't think Zenit Kazan was necessarily playing their best volleyball of the season. I don't think they were an absolute disaster, like some people on the internet seem to believe. I think you have to give a lot of credit to the great play of Kemerovo as well, but yeah, they aren't playing like they did against Perugia in the Champions League semifinals. Not playing badly, but just a step slower. I think they're serving pressure was not nearly as strong as it has been at points in the season. I think they were taken a bit off, maybe under the assumption that Kamarova didn't have the best passers, but still, I think they should have gone for a more risky serves. But also, for the last couple months, I don't think the Zenikazan team has been this unstoppable monolith that we've seen so often in the past. Remember that they almost lost against Treffle Gdansk in the Champions League semifinals, Gdansk, a team that didn't even make the Plus Liga playoffs. I feel like I keep having to remind people of this. The storyline of this final series would have been a lot different if Zenikazan had lost that quarterfinals match and not be in the Champions League finals. I think a loss like this was inevitable for Zenikazan. Obviously, not having Wilfredo Leon has proved to be a pretty big difference, maybe not in the regular season, but definitely in the playoffs when teams tighten up, play their best volleyball. Engapet is amazing, but he's not quite the offensive weapon that Leon was. So this leads into another couple Zenit Kazan related questions. One from BL Volley 2, who asks, How do you think Kazan's loss against Kamarova will affect their mental state ahead of the Champions League finals? I mean, it is just one series loss for Zenikazan. All these guys still have a very storied history of winning, winning the last four Champions League titles, the last five Russian League titles. So on the one hand, I guess you could say that they aren't used to losing, so it could affect them more than the average team. But at the same time, 
They looked very dejected after the loss against Kemerovo, but they weren't blaming each other. They weren't getting angry at each other. It all seemed to be internalized disappointment, which I think is a better sign than if they were blaming each other and getting mad at each other. The team chemistry still seems to be high. And let's be honest, Lube Chivitanova is not playing their best volleyball ever. We'll see how they do in their next match, but the most recent one as of the recording of this podcast was a horrible 3-0 loss to Perugia. And then Dur Fish Expert asks, what are the chances of Lube winning the Champions League now that Kazan does not look like their best? I would say that before this Kemerova loss, I would have said Kazan with a decent edge. But now that they've lost, we've seen that you can beat Kazan if you can just dig them and take away a bit of offense in the middle. So I think it's pretty much even at this point. We'll see how the rest of the Perugia-Lube series finishes out. If Lube comes out strong and maybe even wins the next two games and wins the Scudetto, I think I would give Lube the edge. But unlikely that is going to happen, let's be honest. So I think it's pretty much dead even. Maybe Zenik is on with a slight edge. So that's it for Kemerovo stuff. want to give another congrats to them. Don't necessarily know if they're going to be the next Russian dynasty. Zenik is on, probably going to retool a bit this year and come back stronger than ever. But definitely, I think, the biggest upset between all the leagues in terms of who's winning the championship trophy. And nice to see a team other than Zenik is on actually win it. The next question is from Sam Shenton, and he asks, is Clemens Sebule replacing Aaron Russell in Trentino? Sebule, one of the transfers announced a couple days ago, but I would say I doubt he's there to replace Aaron Russell. I think Aaron Russell and Uros Kovacevic were an awesome starting outside pair for Trentino this year. I doubt they would change that if they could. I think Sebule was brought in to be a third option as an outside, I think. Trentino suffered a bit this year because they didn't really have that third outside option they could go to. Oresto Cavuto, a guy who might see some time at the Nations League for the Italian team this summer, still a bit young, still a bit raw. I liked what I saw from him, but as of right now, not someone you want to have a lot of playing time at the high levels of the Italian Super League. Martin Van Garderen, a little older player, but same thing. Not really a player you want to give a ton of playing time, even against the mid-tier teams in the Italian Super League, which, by the way, are pretty good right now. So I think Clement Sabule is a step up, a tier up from those two guys. I think you can play him against a lot of teams. And the other thing is, is he's a huge server. So maybe if you want an extra service pressure one game, he can come in for one of your middles, take a few serves for them. We've seen this kind of instant offense off the bench slash big server guy be successful Perugia's done it well with Nick Hogue and Alexander Berger. Zenik Azan does it with Sermachevsky. So I think a lot of the elite teams have the budget, have the ability to have a third pretty high-level outside hitter. Just someone who can come in when one of your starters is struggling, provide a bit of relief, give them a bit of rest. I think that makes a difference over the course of an entire season, so I do not think he's coming in to replace Aaron Russell. Sonder Finn had a few good questions, and one of them is, which teams are the most interesting to watch? So I watch a ton of volleyball. Honestly, I find like almost all of it interesting or else I wouldn't be watching so much. But there's a few categories of teams that I do enjoy watching more than others. The first one, I think this is the main one, is just the really high-level talented teams, of course, are always going to be more fun to watch. Just the higher-level volleyball is really entertaining. So teams like Trentino, Lube, Civitanova, Zenica Zahn, those kinds of teams... Really exciting to watch. 
if two of those teams are playing each other, you can pretty much be guaranteed it's going to be an exciting match. Another category of teams I really enjoy watching are teams with a lot of like high-level prospects. So guys like Kohunoski on Skraw, Dane and Jimma and Mikamaa on UCLA. But I think the team that embodies this the most is Monza in the Italian League. They had their really young, really athletic, really explosive outside pairing in Oleg Plotnitschki, the Ukrainian, and Donovan Savaronok, the Czech player. Both guys who are just barely in their 20s, future volleyball stars, kind of figuring things out, getting by a lot on athleticism alone right now. But I like seeing the kind of the beginnings, the origin story, because I know these guys are both going to be stars in the future. And then the third category of teams I enjoy watching, going to be honest here, teams with a lot of Canadians on them. In the club season, I don't really root for one team in particular, I just kind of follow the leagues. But when it comes time for national team season, I'm definitely a Canadian volleyball fan. So I like training for the Canadians, especially guys on the senior men's team and guys that I played against when I was in high school and college. Sonderfin's second question is, what do you think of Andreas Takvam, who is a Norwegian middle starting for the elite Bundesliga team, Friedrich Schaffen. I think he's a great player. I love watching him. Really energetic, really fun guy. Very physical player, a little bigger than a lot of middles. Maybe not on height, but definitely in terms of just physical prowess. I think being coached by Vidal Heinen is awesome for him. Vidal Heinen, in my opinion, really good middle coach, gets the most out of his guys. I think he's just improving a lot with age. I've heard that he is going to be playing probably in the Plusliga next season, so that will be exciting to watch, kind of being able to watch him a little bit more because the Plusliga is a league that I follow more closely. But I think playing those three years in Friedrichshafen did a lot of good stuff for his development. Also, he has a wicked arm swing. Always love the guys who just try and bang the ball. In the last question from Sandra Finn, what do you think of Jonas Kvelin? Not sure if I'm saying that right. In his success in the Swiss League. So honestly, I don't really follow the Swiss League at all. So I haven't watched this guy play really except for the European national team leagues and the Euro Volley qualifiers. Just watching some of the footage I have of him. Very physical for a setter. Impressed me with that. Definitely doesn't have the buttery smooth hands that a lot of top level setters do, but I think he's ready for a bigger challenge than the Swiss League, so it'll be interesting to see where he ends up. Santa Lapislan asked me a longer question. He's saying, you talked about Addis Lagumzija, who I talked about in my Best Prospects in Men's Volleyball podcast. Go check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. But he says, what about Bayram Effie, who is a 16-year-old, 16-year-old, on Hockbeck Ankara and took a set off of Zenit Kazan. So to prep for this podcast, I actually went back and watched that game against Zenit Kazan. I think I was actually covering that game for the CEV at the time, so I watched a bit of it, but I didn't realize that this guy was only 16 years old. He grows a better beard than I can, so was not expecting his young age. I mean, it's tough to analyze a 16-year-old because they haven't really grown and matured into their body yet, so that's a huge factor. Like, just watching the set, I would say he definitely needs to add probably about half a foot to his spike touch before he can become really effective. Wasn't really able to hit too high above the tape. Wasn't jumping crazy high. But I will say his skill is incredibly impressive for a 16-year-old. I think if he grows into his body a bit, gets a little taller, can jump a bit higher, hits the gym a bit, he could definitely be a huge player on the Turkish men's national team for years to come. I would still say he's a couple years away from maybe 
contributing. And I don't think he'll ever be as good as a prospect as Aris Legumzija. But cool that a 16-year-old is taking part in Champions League matches. Very impressive. Robert Luden asks, who has the best starting seven in Italy? I would have to say probably Lube or Trentino or Perugia. All three super successful teams. I know it's kind of a cop-out to not pick one. Maybe you can take Perugia out of that, even though they have a really good starting lineup. Filippo Lanza and Fabio Ricci are maybe a bit weaker than the other team's weakest links. And Perugia has a really good bench with Nick Hogue and Alex Berger and Piccinelli, which I think contributes positively to their success. Trentino on paper is super stacked. Kovacevic, Russell, Lizanach, Candelaro, Grabenikov, Gianelli, and unfortunately, Vittori kind of brings them down a bit, but every other player in that starting lineup is incredible. Lube, pretty similar to Trentino. Everyone's really solid, except their weak link, probably in Belasso and Chester. I will say that probably Lube and Perugia's lineups are more improved than Trentino's when you are moving to Champions League and there's no foreign player restrictions. Lube can bring in Stankovic and Perugia can bring in Hogue and Berger. Brian Han asks, if you were a GM, would you rather have a world-class opposite, outside hitter, middle blocker, setter, or libero? My first thought when I saw this question was probably an outside hitter. It's the only position that affects every part of the game. Even though they don't get quite as high as a set load as the opposite usually, they still pass, they serve, they block, they do everything. A lot of them are the second setter, guys like Engapet and Milada Badapur. And we've seen that if an outside hitter is good enough, there's no issue with making them the first option on offense. We've seen that with Wilfredo Leon on Perugia. We've seen that with Sam Daru on Zaxa this year. We saw it with Eros Kovacevic on Trentino. There's definitely quite a few examples if you're good enough of a hitter on the outside. So I would say probably I would, I would choose a high level outside first. You could also make an argument for setter. They're the only position that touches the ball on every possession. So you could definitely make the argument that they have the most opportunities to improve the ball. But there's also a limited amount that a setter can do to improve bad players. I think an amazing setter with bad teammates, that's still a bad team. You could also make the argument that a world-class middle blocker like Mazursky or a world-class libero like Rubenikov could be a really good way to start a team just because there's so few world-class middle blockers in liberos. Liberos is pretty much Grabenikov, Zatorsky, maybe Kalachi, and then like huge drop-off after that. So if you had a world-class one, you'd be starting at a huge positional advantage in libero every single game. Middle blocker is a little bit deeper, but really there's only four or five guys who are in that top tier, and then it drops off real quick after that. But also these two positions don't get to touch the ball quite as much as setter, opposite, and outside hitters. Saku Sakoisa asks, who are the top 10 servers in volleyball? Picking the first like six or seven wasn't too hard. Then after that, there's just so many players to choose from. So I will give it my best shot in narrowing it down to 10. Number one, we obviously have Wilfredo Leon. I think by far, by far the best server in the world right now. Absolutely shattered the Superliga ace record with 94 aces on the season wish he could have got to 100 but still 94 i think it was like almost 30 more <laughs> than the second most aces of all time number two have irvin Engapet. 
proved himself to be an invaluable server over the last few years. One of the only guys who can reasonably expect to get like eight aces in one set. Remember that in Modena last year? Absolutely crazy. Number three, Alexander Atanasevich, the second most ace getter in the Italian Super League, would have broken Osmani Wantarina's record as well, but unfortunately his teammate Leon did it before he could. Still 70 plus aces in one season in the Italian League. Absolutely spectacular. The fact that him and Leon are on the same team is like definitely one of the biggest reasons for their success. Number four, Ivan Zaitsev, currently tied for fastest serve speed in the world. I think set last year at the Nations League with 134 kilometers per hour. When he is feeling it, definitely one of the most dangerous servers in volleyball, as I'm sure you're all aware. Number five, Namir Abdelaziz, playing for Milano in the Italian Super League was actually also on pace to crush the ace record last season before he got injured and still managed to rack up some of the most aces in the league this season despite being injured for quite a bit of it. Another very high risk but very high reward server when he can get it in the court. Number six, Jorg Rozier, who led the Russian league in aces this season. Another player like Engapet, some games he'll have one ace or no aces, then you'll check the stat lines for another game. It'll have like six or seven aces. So really streaky server, but when he's on, he's almost impossible to pass. Probably would have been almost at the top of this list in years past, but getting a little older now. Number seven, Yoandri Leal. Even though he didn't have his best serving season ever, he was still one of the best to do it in the Italian Super League. Another guy whose aggression and power can lead to a lot of aces, but also lead to quite a few misses. Number eight, Oleg Plotnitschke, another guy near the top of the leaderboards for aces in the Italian Super League this season. His technique is a little different from some of these other jump servers. He's shorter than some of them, but I've never seen a guy jump so high on his jump serve. Sometimes it looks like he's going to land on the attack line. If you haven't seen him serve before, I highly suggest you watch some Ukrainian volleyball this summer, go back and check some of Monza's old games. Number nine, our first middle blocker on the list, Matej Biniak, also our first guy who float serves on the list, but he has an absolutely devastating hybrid two-hand toss, float, and spin serve. His height and two-hand toss make it almost impossible to predict whether he's going to spin it or float it, and sometimes it's almost a combination of the two. His spin serve gets a lot of power, hits the back and sidelines very frequently, and because people are playing for his jump serve, his float serve can catch players out of position, especially guys who aren't as comfortable bump passing the float serves. In number 10 on the list, Maxi Mikhailov. It was really close between him and Politev, both with very similar stats in the Russian league, both extremely dangerous. I would say Politev has a bit more power, but Mikhailov makes less errors and is a little more accurate with who he can serve to. So I'll give the slight edge to Mikhailov, but both good servers. And I'll just list off some of the guys that I thought were close. Already mentioned Victor Politev, Dmitry Mazursky, Robert Landy-Simon, Micah Christensen, Wallace, Sreko Lizanach, Taylor Sander, and Kevin LaRue are just some of the guys. Also very devastating servers. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there's guys I'm forgetting. If you have any that you can think of, shoot me a message. Simon Ur asks, who are the top five players who've come off the bench in volleyball? So volleyball isn't like basketball or hockey. Your bench players 
don't necessarily go in every single match. In fact, a lot of teams will pretty much never play their bench. But there are teams who do have players coming off the bench in important roles. One of the main ones this year was Douglas Souza, who definitely shouldn't have been a bench player in the first place. But since his club team, Tabate, had already signed Ricardo Lucarelli and Facundo Conte, two extremely talented outsides, it was tough to get Douglas Souza a starting role, but they did use him a lot off the bench. If one of those two guys needed rest, if one of them was playing poorly, especially Conte, they would be pretty quick to sub him off. So he did end up seeing a lot of playing time, unfortunately injured in the playoffs. So he didn't get to come off the bench for that, but it's not often you see a player that good come off the bench for significant periods of time. Another guy, Gabriele Nelly, playing behind Luca Vittori in Trentino. Honestly, I think this is a very close call for the coaches. I think you definitely could have justified Nelly being in the starting position, but he was used a lot to serve. He was used sometimes against really good outsides as a blocking specialist. And then if Luca Vittori was playing poorly, they did not hesitate to put him in. Still played a lot of matches for Trentino, did a good job. And just a very talented player to have on the bench. Could definitely be starting on a number of Italian Super League teams. Another talented player coming off the bench in Italy, Nick Hoag, who was actually starting for Szczesin at the beginning of the year in Poland before that club folded, but came to Perugia doing an excellent job as a serving specialist for their middles. In fact, basically saved their season in the semifinal game against Modena, where they were down, I think it was like 23-17 or something around that, and he came in and basically served them to win the set, thus saving their season. So just for that, you pretty much have to give it to him also. Again, extremely talented player, could be starting on a large number of teams, but fits this role as the instant offense option and serving specialist on Perugia really well. Another outside player, Rafael Shishimura, who actually, I don't know if this counts, but he started in the finals against Oniko Versava over Alexander Schlifka, but did spend the vast majority of the year coming off the bench. I think he's a player that was forgotten about a bit when it comes to kind of up-and-coming young Polish outsides, but that final series, man, that really cemented him as a player to watch in the future. Great arm swing, really strong server. Definitely improved passing since the last few times I saw him. We also saw him at opposite a couple times for Zaxa. So versatile player, young player. He's going to have a lot of opportunities to show his stuff starting for Katowice next season. And finally, Simone Anzani, who mostly came off the bench for Modena this season behind Max Holt and Daniele Mazzoni. A bit of a fall from his peak for Mr. Anzani, who I thought did a pretty good job last year in Perugia and a good job with the Italian national team this summer as basically their best middle and full-time starter. So it was a bit surprising to see him coming off the bench for Modena. Didn't play his best volleyball when he came in, but if we're just talking about the guys who have the most talent coming off the bench, I think he definitely fits the bill. We'll see. I think he has a three-year contract with Modena, so we'll see if he decides to move on from that, go to a team where he can start and kind of reclaim his mojo, or whether he's happy to be a bench player behind the younger Italian middle, Daniele Mazzoni. So that's that question. Jordan Foote asks, What are your thoughts on the secrecy behind the top-tier contracts in the Italian Super League? I just think it's a result of volleyball maybe not being quite as popular as the other sports where you know instantly how much a player is making, what they signed for. Because technically in other sports, that's information that's not really released by the club. It's usually 
the agent of the player will leak the information to a journalist who they use to then convey that information to the general public. Like in the NBA, Adrian Wojnarowski often plays this role as the journalist. So A, we don't really have a ton of journalists in volleyball. So unless the agent is going to leak the information himself, which I think is technically against the rules, then there's no real way for that information to get out to the general public. This stuff's not really a culture of sharing that information. Also, it's in the club's best interest for the information not to leak because the fans won't get mad at them for paying too much or too little for players. Players aren't as aware of the market value for different levels of talent, especially when it comes to contracts in different leagues. Also, I don't think the players would necessarily want everyone to know how much they make. You see it often in other sports where a guy will be making like $5 million a year and then the fans use that as an arguing point if they play badly saying that they should be cut from the team because they're making so much money and they're not living up to their contract, which doesn't really happen as much in volleyball because for the most part, we don't know how much they make. So I think it might not ever happen considering that the clubs and the players and the agents are in a unique situation in sports where there's not really a culture of disclosing contract information. So I think it'll take some very dedicated journalism to get that out of the agents and players and share it with the public. Or as Delia asks, can you envision a professional Canadian league? And yeah, of course I can. It's basically a dream of every Canadian and American volleyball fan at this point, having a professional league that we can go out and watch with all these amazing players, all this amazing volleyball. It would be fantastic rather than watching 99% of it on TV. As to whether it's possible, I think I think it is. I'm definitely more optimistic than a lot of people on this topic. There's a lot of people who say it would never be sustainable in North America. But I think there's just way too much money in North America. There are a ton of volleyball fans in Canada and certain parts of the United States. So I think it would have to be very regionally based. Of course, Northeastern United States, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, and Ontario are volleyball hotbeds. But then you have California and then the Pacific Northwest, which are also very popular for volleyball. So I think that's one of the issues. It's such an east-west split with not very much in the middle. I mean, you have the Midwest in Canada does have a lot of good volleyball players and teams, but it's just very spread out compared to Europe. Also, if you're going to do a volleyball league and do it the right way, it would probably be a huge money sink for the first 10 or 15 years. Before you develop the popularity, before you convince people that volleyball is a good spectator sport, which we've seen, if people watch volleyball live, they love it, they think it's amazing, but there just aren't that many opportunities to watch for a lot of people. So what you've seen from the current attempts for professional volleyball in Canada, the One Volleyball League, starting very small, very grassroots, kind of a semi-pro league, like what they're doing, obviously love the intentions. The jury's still out over whether it has a long-term future. They're in their third year now, so that's not bad. There's been leagues that have folded in less than three years, so that's good. And then the NVA in the United States also doing kind of a similar very small scale, very grassroots kind of semi-pro league that hopefully can eventually grow into something a little more professional and more high level. So I don't think we're going to see basically anyone currently playing pro volleyball right now play pro in North America and make a good living off of it. But optimistically, maybe the next generation, I think volleyball has a lot of great, great potential as a spectator sport, good family sport, really safe for kids. So I think it has a lot of things going for it. It's just that nobody's willing to put in the money, in the time and resources in order to launch something professional in North America. Liam Dewar asks, 
who do you think will win Volleyball Nations League? Don't really want to spend too, too much time on this question. Sorry, Liam, because I do want to do at least one, maybe more, kind of more in-depth preview Volleyball Nations League podcast. But I think we do have to wait a bit more to see who all the teams are sending to the Nations League. Because I've heard that a lot of teams are not necessarily going to send their A-team, a lot of teams resting some of their best players. So once we know the rosters a bit more, I can answer that question in more depth. But I will say United States, France, Russia, and Canada all seem like teams that will be pretty strong contenders for medals at the Volleyball Nations League. Of course, Poland, Brazil, and Serbia too, but it really depends on who they decide to send. Rajat Rockstar asks, how can I see live matches? And I've got this question a few times, and the answer still is, go to 51vb.com, my personal website, go to the very top stickied post, and you'll see a post called How to Watch Pro Volleyball in 2019. That will have links and explanations to how to watch pro matches in pretty much any volleyball league in the world. So go check that out. It'll probably have a lot of good links for you. You can start watching professional volleyball. Grant Dovarok asks, what is your favorite personal highlight and your favorite pro highlight? Favorite pro highlight is a little easier. I think a favorite one has to be in the Volleyball Nations League Final Six last year. Jean Patry, there was a ball coming basically parallel to the net in the antenna. And he does this weird spinning bump pass that somehow spins around the antenna, stays in play, and lands on the other side leaving the other team in complete disbelief. I don't know how he managed to make it spin like that. One of the most impressive volleyball plays I've ever seen. I think it's on my Instagram if you want to go check that out. Probably been posted by the official FIVB Instagram as well. I just don't know how he did it. I don't know what the odds of that play are because they've got to be incredibly low. As for favorite personal highlight, that's a bit tougher. Probably a play that was kind of similar to the aforementioned Jean Patry play. I was playing six back. Our block got tooled. The player in five dug the ball, but it went way, way, way to the other side of the gym, sprinted as fast as I could, dove, and by the way, we're probably like 20 meters away from the net at this point, dove, did a one-handed kind of scoop-like dig. The other team was already celebrating because they didn't expect me to get it, popped it over, won the point. The other team couldn't even believe it happened. I was very impressed with myself. Probably unlikely impossible digs are my favorite kind of highlight play to make in general. And kind of related to that, Julie Zenner asks, did you play volleyball? Kind of still do play. Play some beach and some just local leagues in my city. I guess the highest level I played was the junior varsity team at Western University. So extremely high level stuff, guys. Now we're almost at the end here. Bees Pony asks, why did you pick the name 5-1 Volleyball? Is there a history to that name? So not a ton of history to it. Mainly I just wanted to pick something because I was having trouble picking a name. It's actually a lot harder than you would think. But A, 5-1 main rotation people use in volleyball. Also, at least where I'm from, a 5-1 is a type of set. And also I wanted to include numbers because I wanted 5-1 volleyball to be a lot more statistically based than a lot of the contemporary volleyball media stuff. I wanted to have stats be a focal point of how I discuss about volleyball, how I talk about volleyball. Maybe I haven't stuck to that as much as I planned to originally. I think stats are still a really important part of how I talk about and think about volleyball. Last question from Declan, not volleyball related. He asks, would you rather have free Wi-Fi everywhere you go or free coffee whenever you want? Just looking at the economics of it, I think Wi-Fi is the way to go. If you also live in Canada, you know the pain of how expensive internet and cell phone stuff is here. So having Wi-Fi everywhere you go on your phone and on your computers would save you 
like $100 at least every month. That would be huge. I do not spend that much on coffee. Easy enough just to make it at home. I'm not one of those people who has to go out every day and buy a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons. So I'm going to say just from an economic and convenience point of view, easily, easily Wi-Fi. All right, guys, I have to get going now. Going to watch the Korean volleyball draft tryouts should be really interesting. Hopefully I can talk a bit about that experience on a future podcast. Also going to do a podcast on a lot of the transfers because we are getting so many right now. Also, thanks for listening, guys. We're getting a lot of downloads, a lot of new fans. Great stuff. Remember, share the podcast with your friends if you have anyone else you think that wants to get into watching and following pro volleyball. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. Thanks.